that night the city burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her. And yet the tower and the spire still stand, soaring to the sky, and I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God. Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the North American Anglican. Hello, hello. Hello there. Welcome to the Miserable Offenders podcast. This is Ken and Andrew Brazier. And this is Canon Isaac Rayburn. Actually, I'm 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 technically venerable now. It's crazy. Things, I'm things about happen. to say, you know, like <laughs> these things happen. You know, <laughs> got to change business cards. Got to change the way I do things. Whatever. <laughs> that's great. Oh man, I, I hope that that's what you told your kids. You know, like, you know, how are you venerable? Well, these things just happen, kiddos. You know, you just wake <laughs> up and. All of a sudden, you get a call from the bishop, and what can you say? <laughs> I'm told that literally means old man, and, and I guess one day I woke up, and now I'm middle-aged. That's the way that goes. So. Oh, I thought it meant like an old, old wooden ship using the Civil War or something like that. So. <laughs> I feel like that sometimes, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and and I think since last time we talked, you've become father, Andrew. That is true. You know, this is what happens when you take forever to, to do podcasts, you know, uh, these things happen, as you said. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it is true. I was uh, ordained to uh, to the priesthood of the Catholic Presbyter uh, back in uh, December during Advent, and um, it's, uh, you know, taken some, some getting used to. Uh, it's it's really surreal um, yeah. and, and humbling, and I've been going through uh, St. John Chrysostom's On the Priesthood, which as a fellow clergyman told me, said it will actually ab- absolutely keep you up at night. And uh, he wasn't lying about that. It, it really is a, a good read in terms of uh, placing the seriousness of the, uh, the presbyterate on anybody who's discerning for orders. I highly recommend it. So. Yeah, that's, that's, that's definitely a good one. It's been way too long since I've been through it. So yeah, that's a good recommendation. Really anything that uh, Chrysostom does, um, I think it's fantastic. So, absolutely. Well, I guess if uh, we can go ahead and, and continue on as we're going through uh, Doctor Tunes, um, uh, knowing God through the liturgy, and we've had a a bit of a break uh, here and there, but we're we're back at it and glad to, to be back at it. We're doing the Living God as the section that we're on. Uh, if you're following with us, I think that. Jesse, who uh, unfortunately couldn't be with us today, but has been uh, so diligent in being our director, producer, editor, you know, wearing all the hats, um, has done a great job of keeping the show notes updated. And I'm sure that he'll keep it updated in terms of where you can find this online for free. Uh, we're on newscriptorium.com is where uh, Canon Isaac, or the venerable Canon Isaac, I should say, <laughs> myself, <laughs> are, are both on and, and reading. So um, I guess without further ado, we can kind of jump into the living uh, God there. So uh, right. Canon Isaac, I'll jump in and do the, uh, the first uh, paragraph there, and then we can awesome. continue from there. So the living God, there is much to know about God, for he is like a glorious, everlastingly inexhaustible fountain, 
from which we drink and continue to drink. He is super essential being. And the more we know about him, the more we realize there is to know. Knowledge of the Lord as the Holy Trinity is fundamental. And without this knowledge, we can make no progress in worship and devotion. But there are many other aspects of the knowledge of God that we need to know in order that we might grow in our personal relationship with him. And so it's a short paragraph there, but it really ties in the, the depth of, of what it is to know God and to know God uh, through the Trinity, uh, knowing him as the Father, the Son, and the, the Holy Spirit. And I like how he starts off this section, which is really the, the conclusion. This is the last section of chapter three that we're in. and really brings us to the, the ultimate reality that to know God is to know that we need to know even more, that he's inexhaustible, as he says. And I like that phrase, super essential being. That's, mm. that's something that uh, might take some chewing over. Absolutely. And uh, it can't, uh, I can't help but think about when reading that, the super essential being about uh, you know, the name of God revealed to uh, Moses in the burning bush. You know, I am who I am. The yeah. Yeah. All existing one. Um, really showing that there's no beginning, no end, the alpha and the omega when, when it comes to God. So how could we ever exhaust ourselves in knowing uh, who God is and knowing the, the relationship within the Holy Trinity and the way that he relates uh, to us as creation. Yeah, it's good stuff. All right, well, I'm going to pick up the next paragraph then. Sounds good. For this reason, we study and meditate upon the Holy Scriptures. Anglicans have always claimed that the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the first source of our knowledge of God. For the Anglican who devoutly follows and uses the lectionary, there is a daily immersion in the vital source of our knowledge of the Lord our God. Further, the major aspects of the whole doctrine of God, as that is provided in the Bible, are woven into the wording of the various services provided in the common prayer tradition. For example, the teaching that God is the dynamic creator and sustainer of the universe and that by his providence he works all things for the purpose of his glory is clearly and reverentially stated in the collects and prayers. A lot of good material there, especially going through what we uh, believe as Anglicans. And I have to comment on loving that opening statement, the first two statements he has there in terms of Anglicans have always claimed, me quoting him, Anglicans have always claimed that the scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the first source of our knowledge of God. Unfortunately, it's been quite controversial uh, in the past 50, 60, 70 years, uh, even in Anglican circles, in terms of where do we derive the uh, ultimate source of our knowledge of God. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the the three-legged stool that was attributed to Hooker, but he never mm -hmm. actually said it, <laughs> is, <laughs> is a big part of that with, within our own uh, kind of narrative within our tradition. Um, you know, as if scripture, reason, and tradition were of equal uh, authority, which, which that has never been the claim of our formularies. No, not at all. And, and I'm glad you, you make that point. Ken and Isaac about the formularies, because when you go to it uh, and you look at what the articles of religion say about it, 
you see how the scriptures are continually cited as the source of our belief. Uh, I mean, not only Article 6, talking about the sufficiency of Holy Scriptures for salvation, and it states, quote, Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man, that it should be believed as an article of faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. And then throughout the rest of the Articles of Religion, uh, it continually cites back to the Scripture, including to why do we believe the creeds uh, in Article uh, 8. Uh, it cites back to the fact that they can be proved by most certain warrants of Holy Scripture, uh, even in the Article of Predestination and Election, of Salvation by the Name of Christ alone, etc. And in the two books of homilies, in the first book, we uh, start off with a fruitful exhortation of the reading and knowledge of Holy Scripture. So it's very much in the the uh, the essence uh, and the backbone of, of what we as Anglicans believe. Yeah, and I, I, I really, really like that first homily. Um, that's really the first three, but that's such a great place to start. It was put together really um, in, in a very proper kind of building, building up the doctrine sort of way. And so that's, yeah, that's that's a good mention there too. And I do like a more robust lectionary than um, what sometimes we've seen, you know, the 2019, we've talked about this before, 2019's yeah. daily office lectionary is very robust, which is very nice. Um, 28, a little bit less so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, unfortunately. But, but even then, I mean, you're getting a really good overview, no matter which lectionary you're using. Of, yeah. of, of the Holy Scriptures that include all those major aspects of who God is. And that, that's really the, the important part. Absolutely. And I think you really, you know, hit the nail, uh, you know, uh, on the head when it comes to that, because the key is to constantly be reading Holy Scripture, to be formed by Holy Scripture, and to know God through Holy Scripture. And you know, when it comes to looking to the, the source of our faith and our salvation, we've got to crack open uh, the good book, which I'm afraid in, in this day and age, even though we have the scriptures, I mean, readily available and, uh, and so cheap. I mean, free for crying out loud. As oh, long yeah. as you have an internet connection, uh, I find that uh, less and less of those of us of the tribe Christian are, are actually reading and in the word. Yeah. What, what there, and there are some bright spots with that. Um, mm -hmm. Also, um, I don't remember where I was reading this, but um, I, I, I know I read in a couple different places that mm -hmm. one of the top podcasts of 2020 was a Roman Catholic podcast that all they did was read through the scriptures. Yeah, I saw that as well. I, or I read it. It's actually ironic because before uh, we started uh, recording, since we're recording in a different manner, I actually hopped on to um, our podcast main page and saw where it listed one of the top um, suggestions for podcasts. If you listen to uh, to this one, then you also want to listen to, I think it's just simply called like read uh, through the Bible in a year. Uh, and it's that same uh, preach, the one that you're mentioning, uh, yeah. which is refreshing, especially if you click on you know, the most popular podcasts um, yeah, in the Christian uh, genre. Uh, some of it can be kind of concerning, <laughs> a little bit depressing. <laughs> I'll leave it at that without going into any further commentary. But uh, but that's a, a bright spot. That's the number one. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. All right. Well, shall you pick up the next one? Absolutely.
So uh, beginning in the third, excuse me, the third paragraph here, over the centuries, Christians have learned about God from being taught the creed and the catechism. By hearing and reading the Bible, and by accepting the teaching about God, which appears in the text, the prayer book. This has been augmented by sermons, by further teaching, by home study groups, and personal study and reflection. In the daily services of morning and evening prayer, there is the requirement that the participants confess their faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty. In the order for Holy Communion, there is also the requirement that the Nicene or Apostles' Creed be used. The Nicene, like the Apostles, begin in a personal way. I believe in one God. And goes on to state, with a marvelous economy of words, what I called above, classical Christian theism, Trinitarian theism. There is yet a further official confession of faith in Anglicanism, which fell into disuse from the 18th century onwards in America, but which, to my mind, a moving and succinct statement of the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the person of Christ. I refer to it above as the Quincuque Volt, or the Athanasian Creed. It has an integral place in the Book of Common Prayer, 1662, of the Church of England. I was and just once again canonizing. I was going to say once again I hit that Latin phrase, which I didn't learn it between the months of our Latin episode <laughs> this one. But it's that the nation creed. So. Yeah, yeah. Nation creed. <laughs> I, I was uh, I was reading in the last couple of days. Um, yeah. In, in laudable practice, I don't know if you if you follow his stuff, and he's oh yeah, I love his stuff. Yeah. yeah. For those who don't know, he he's a Church of Ireland uh, priest, I believe. Um, I, th- I think Jesse knows who he is. I I don't. <gasps> Oh, I, that, I, that's impressive. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure it does. Fruit. Yeah, I'm not part of that secret club, you know. <laughs> oh, me neither. But um, yeah, he's been doing um, a series the last couple of days on the yeah. Athanasian Creed and how um, in the 19th century revision of the Church of, in the Church of Ireland's canons, mm-hmm. um, they retained it in the prayer book and in the canons, but they made its liturgical recitation optional. And apparently there was a huge controversy in the early 19th, late 18th century over the Athanasian Creed within the Church of England and all of her daughter churches, specifically because of the uh, the, the damnation clauses. Yeah. You know, yeah. The, and um, so there was a lot of people that were agitating for its removal, which is, of course, what the American church did. Um, but the argument that the guy from laudable practice was making is that um, it was a really good compromise move because they enshrined that the the theological content of the Athanasian creed is absolutely essential. um, Mm -hmm. But understandably some of the liturgical use could be difficult. And so they, so making that optional worked. And I I wish we would have done that here in the States. I, I think, I think the way we did it was not the best way. Yeah, I hate that we uh, stripped it out of our American prayer books. And, uh, of course, it's been placed back into the 2019 um, ACNA Book of Common Prayer. But as to the classic prayer books, uh, like the 1928 prayer book, um, it does not have it. The the 1979 uh, prayer book uh, also didn't have the Athanasian Creed. But uh, they did reinsert it in the 2019 um, ACNA Book of Common Prayer. And they have it, I want to say, it's only required for um, use on Trinity Sunday. I know that on my copy of it, uh, I've made a notation to do it during the other um, 12 times of the year as memory serves uh, with the 1662 
prayer book uh, prescribes it, but yeah, at least it's it's making its way back, or it's made its way back in the North American uh, context. But it is a great shame that uh, it was ever lost in the first place. And there's even a battle to take away the uh, the Nicene Creed. And if memory serves me right, I was reading some history on the early American prayer book like months ago, so I've forgotten as much as I learned. Uh, that there might have even been a debate on trying to take out the Apostles' Creed. But I do recall the Nicene Creed was also on the chopping block, and that was one of the, the things that the American Episcopalians had a war about and said, no, it's going to stay in the, the prayer book uh, in 1789. Yeah, my, my, if I remember my history right on that. The, uh, yeah, the, the first proposed American prayer book was just absolutely chopped <laughs> it was yeah. it was, it was a, an absolutely butchered liturgy mm-hmm. and that um it was very much trying to appease unitarians yeah um, absolutely absolutely and, and it seems like what what happened was faithful churchmen at the lay level and also you know lower clergy level but but especially the lay level just really rebelled against that mm-hmm. and said no we you know we're talking about being in continuity with what came before and this is not a continuity with what came before yeah yeah absolutely yeah good stuff all right well i'll, I'll jump on the next one then we're, we're, we're flying through this time we are, we are. <laughs> <laughs> about time right <laughs> exactly <laughs> in saying i believe each christian present is speaking for himself and stating the faith of the church it is a confession that points not only to knowledge and beliefs about god but also to a truly personal relation with God the Father through God the Incarnate Son. The creed may be seen as the response of the believer to the revelation of and salvation from God in Jesus Christ given to each of us. On the basis of what God has said and done, I say to him, Lord, I believe. Thus something of importance is lost in the modern Anglican services where the creed begins, we believe. I do recall that being one of the big um, kind of, I mean, I hate to use this kind of phrase, but like axes to grind that Dr. Toon had uh, yeah, was, yeah. was the I versus we. And, um, you know, the, the criticism has been that that's kind of much ado about nothing. And, and I, I do have to confess, I, I, I'm not sure it's as big of a deal as he and some other folks have made it out to be. Um, I know it's a lot better Latin to say I believe, but mm-hmm. my but I, I my understanding is that is that the we change was to bring it into conformity with the way the creed was um, articulated at the council itself. Interesting. I didn't realize that little tidbit. So I was kind of curious on why the the switch from I to we, and and I'm like you. I'm not. I don't quite fully grasp. Maybe I don't fully appreciate. Um, that axe to grind, as you said, because it very much was one that uh, Dr. Tim was known for for criticizing the 1979 prayer book about. Um, and it's retained in terms of saying we instead of saying I in the 2019 ACNA prayer book. But I will note that on the uh, baptismal uh, office, uh, or at least I'm drawing memory actually from the renewal of baptismal vows. We had one of those um, not too long ago that actually has the Apostles' Creed, uh, it's broken down into a uh, question and response form, uh, but it has the I believe in it, which makes sense because you're professing your belief personally 
uh, as you're being baptized. And I'm pulling up, yeah, it, it's, it's like that in the baptismal office as well, I believe, which makes sense because the person being baptized is making that confession of their personal faith uh, before being received into the church. And, and that's very much the context of um, the uh, the Apostles' Creed anyway. I mean, that's that's where mm-hmm. it comes from. And, and for, for whatever it's worth, I, I just pulled up my, I happen to have my 2019 next to me, um, which is not normal because I, I very rarely use the 2019. Um, but uh, in, in the Apostles' Creed, it is, it is I. Um, and I, th- I think that was the same in the 79. But um, okay. it's it's the nice scene where it gets it gets changed it to does, the we, yeah, yeah. the we, yeah. And I don't think there's any instance because there wouldn't be since, like you said, the Apostles' Creed is the the baptismal creed historically throughout the West, and uh, the Nicene Creed we traditionally use uh, for Holy Eucharist. So still has the we believe in that aspect. Yeah, but I, I do think it's really it's a really neat um, kind of you know, these last two paragraphs, all the different ways that we, we do throughout the liturgy and just the life of the church, learn about God. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, th- there is very much a, a almost by osmosis way of doing things. And, and it's, you know, it's not this huge data dump on, on our parishioners, but it's just this long movement in the, in the right direction over time. Yeah, yeah. Which which seems to be, in, in my opinion, I think that's a really good thing. I do too, yeah. I think it's definitely good for, for formation uh, as well uh, and making sure that we're developing people uh, of the faith in the faith uh, and going in that direction. Yeah. Well, we'll pick up here with the uh, the last uh, paragraph. We've quickly gone through this. You know, I think that we had... <laughs> I think we had more material this time around and have gone through it quicker. But <laughs> <laughs> This Trinitarian theism expressed in the Nicene Creed informs the whole approach to and content of worship. Even though it's only stated explicitly here and there, for example, in the glory at the end of the singing or recital of each psalm in the final blessing, knowledge of God and the Holy Trinity is present as the great unifying doctrine and dogma of the whole common prayer tradition. Knowledge about God is intended to be the expression of personal knowing of God in the services of worship, be they daily office or the administration of the sacraments of baptism and Holy Communion. We are to worship the Father through and in the Son, by and in the Holy Spirit. The Trinitarian structure of the services therefore exists is the vehicle for our, excuse me, is the vehicle for our faith knowledge of God as Holy Trinity, so that we may both pray together and as individual persons in common. In other words, genuine communal prayer. Joined to Christ Jesus in faith and through the Holy Spirit, we join in his prayer, which he offers perpetually for his brethren at the right hand of the Father. There's a citation to Romans 8, verse 34. We lift up our hearts, and through the Holy Spirit, we are united to him as our mediator and high priest. He is the head, and we are the members of his body. And therefore, being in him, we're united to the Holy Trinity. And then Dr. Tung uh, concludes this chapter with a collect. Almighty and everlasting God, who has given unto us thy servants grace by the confession of a true faith to acknowledge the glory of the eternal Trinity and in the power of the divine majesty to worship the unity, we beseech thee that thou wouldest keep us steadfast in this faith and evermore defend us from all adversities, who livest and reignest one God, world without end. 
Amen. In the words of the Athanasian Creed, the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity, in Trinity, in unity. Uh, I'm reminded last when we were talking about the um, some of the issues with the early American translations, how it was trying to um, build a bridge to to the Unitarians, which yeah. which was a big problem in so much of the Protestant world in the in the 17th century. Um, you, you, we definitely sometimes hear kind of the trend the, because of how you know the, just the prop preponderance of bad analogies and how, how difficult it supposedly is to understand the Trinity, um, people downplaying its importance. But um, even if you look at ancient hymnody, our forebears did not. I mean, it was super important to the forebears. I mean, every hymn includes Absolutely. something to the Trinity, you know, the Gloria Patri to every Psalm and Canticle. And um, if it's not Trinitarian, it's not Christian is the way that, mm-hmm. Um, the fathers and the reformers all really seem to see things. And um, I really like what the way, the, the way Tune described through the liturgy, our participation in the Trinity being brought in. That's, that's really beautiful stuff. It really is. And that's the, the word that's just floating in my mind when I'm reading it as well. This is beautifully well-written and uh, is definitely something I need to bookmark and, uh, and perhaps like, screen grab it and throw it on our parish website and, and just to put in the bulletin. I was like, what does it mean for us to, to worship God the way that we do? Um, and it's to, to know the Trinity and for the Trinity to know us. And um, what better way than uh, to sum it up there with the way he did through a quote from the Athanasian tr- creed that uh, the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity and unity. It's a wonderful divine mystery but that's the way God has, has revealed himself to us. And so that's the way that we know him. And, and that's, that's also part of why I, I never really have found that the damnation clauses in the Athanasian Creed to be too terribly bothersome yeah. because I mean, basically they're saying <laughs> if you're, if it's not Trinitarian, it's not Christian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, and it's not, it's not so much, you know, declaring, you know, here's a line in the sand and, and you know, we're, I'm going to start declaring anathemas as much as it's simply stating a fact, <laughs> mm-hmm. you yeah. know, if, if there, if there's not union in, to the Trinity, then there's not, there's not salvation. Absolutely. And, and I echo those sentiments. I, I also don't, don't find those phrases offensive or anything to get queasy about. But um, what I find fascinating is that you go back to uh, the 1800s or the 1700s and the 1800s, and see how controversial it becomes and how much of this uh, modern mindset is, uh, is really nothing new under the sun. Uh, it, it's too easy for us to think, you know, things have gone to hell in a handbasket in the past, you know, 20, 30, 50, you know, 100 years. And really, it's been <laughs> longer than that. The, the way that, that man thinks and the way that our uh, philosophy has come at odds with uh, the revealed faith of, of God um, has made even... Uh, loyal churchmen um, a little bit queasy in the stomach when it comes to these ancient uh, creeds, but we're called to, to stand firm uh, into the faith that we proclaim and uh, not to give up in terms of the, the faith that's been delivered to us, uh, provided from the saints of, of, the, of the past, of the saints of yore. And it seems to me, I've been, I've been going through my um, 
from time to time customary reading through the fathers during Lent. Um, yeah. You know, I've got a little 40 day reader that I discovered almost 15 years ago and I've used it most Lent since then. That's but, great. Um, yeah, it was, um, I always put it on, you know, send it out to the parishioners every, every year in case someone wants to read it, but it's, it's yeah. about, you know, 10 to 15 minutes a day and it takes you through it's it's i'm sure they're they're grabbed from the uh, shaft translation because it's public domain but um just finished up saint athanasius um biography of of anthony the hermit and um this doesn't really that work didn't really touch on the big controversy of his day but athanasius day he was kind of the great champion for trinitarian orthodoxy in the face of the arian heresy mm-hmm. and, I, and i think he got he got deposed from his bishopric for upholding orthodoxy oh gosh like five times six times something like thinking. that it was multiple times yeah he was yeah <laughs> restored yeah exactly just based on the the whims of the emperor whoever was emperor at the time um and, and we haven't quite gotten to that point um i mean as, as bad as things look we're not we're not in in a place where it looks like, you know, the just the actual heretics are going to to overwhelm the church the way it seemed yeah. like it was going to be in his day. Uh, and at the same time, you know, it it seems to me that it's at those most difficult times that we have are are the greatest saints of the church are formed in those crucibles anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, people like an Athanasius or an Augustine. Or, or a Cranmer, even. And so. Absolutely. And that's a great point, uh, Ken and Isaac. You know, even Augustine, people often forget that the reason why his motivation for writing the city of God is you have the, the sack of Rome, you have so many people ask, saying, what is happening? You know, the Western Empire is falling. You know, what, what does this mean? And, uh, and he starts to write the city of God. Um, and the whole time he's also. Uh, fighting uh, Pelagianism and is also fighting, um, you know, uh, several other uh, different heresies that are there in um, his realm, or I guess not his realm, I should say, but in his his bishopric uh, and his territory. So it doesn't mean that the church will ever see a time in which there's, you know, complete peace and, and calm, but we nevertheless pray for, for peace in our time, uh, as we yeah. pray in the prayer book. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. Well, well this, this feels is, like a good stopping place, yeah? It does, yeah. We're, we're wrapping up here, getting ready to start on Chapter 4, and that's a, a shorter one, but hopefully that'll just mean that we'll get to do uh, another one more often. But um, as always, Ken and Isaac, it's been fantastic getting to, to catch up with you and chit-chat about uh, Dr. Toon's uh, book. We're now getting ready to start on Chapter 4 for anyone who wants to continue reading and uh, see what is next. Chapter 4 is called Covenant with God. And uh, so Covenant with God, we're a quarter, or no, we are a third uh, the way through the book, uh, at least by chapter. There's 12 chapters on this, and so we'll be starting on, on chapter four. And if uh, if we keep up at our current rate, we'll be done, oh, right around the time our, our children are graduating from college. There but, we go. Uh... Okay, that's the goal. <laughs> All right. There we go. So that's time to get through college. If y'all want this to speed up, you can send a donation to <laughs> our children's college fund account. <laughs> we'll do more episodes. That's right. That's if right. You can pay for our children's college. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, this has been an absolute pleasure, and we will we will yes. catch you all next time. Sounds good. Take care and have a good one. Bye bye. Bye bye. It was the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building. I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to, to rebuild it one day when we've served and suffered a while, a little longer. Build it again to the, to the glory of, of Jesus Christ. Miserable Offenders is a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at N-O-R-T-H-A-M Anglican.com.